The Ensemble Advice South Africa podcast is intended for professional financial advisors. All discussion is limited to publicly available information and should not be interpreted as legal, professional or financial advice. Ensemble Advice is not a licensed financial services provider and does not provide financial services. Before making investment decisions, you should obtain financial advice from a qualified financial advisor. I'm Louis van der Merwe, Certified Financial Planner. Join me every week where I get to have discussions with global leaders in the financial planning space to help you serve your clients better and run a more efficient financial planning practice. This is Financial Planners South Africa podcast. Portfolio Metrics is thrilled to bring you this podcast in support of our common passion for people and the evolution of wealth management. Our global business links precision investment management to expert financial advice through partnerships and technology. Portfolio Metrics is an authorized financial services provider. Comspace is a revenue management solution developed specifically for independent financial advisors. It is a web-based application that tracks, allocates, and manages advisor revenue. The system seamlessly reads commission statements from financial institutions and can address any permutation of commission splits. Comspace provides mind-blowing, out-the-box revenue business intelligence and analytics, along with super-flexible reporting to effectively manage and grow your business. Welcome to another episode of Ensemble Advice South Africa. Today, I have in the studio with me Dr. Megan Lurch. For a lot of you, that name might be familiar. If you read any of the Kitsis.com articles that come out, Megan is a senior research nerd there. And Megan, I just saw your top five strength finders on the Kitsis.com platform, and we happen to share a few, <laughs> which... Uh, I think that learner, right? And it comes through in all of the work you you do. For people that are not familiar maybe with what you do, can you give us like a little bit of a background just on your story into the financial services world? Yeah. So like many people in financial services I have found over the years, there was some nepotism involved in me getting into this industry. My mom a was the is was is the CIO um, of a of a rebalancing platform called Total Rebalance Expert, and I went to work for her. And I happened to be at like a TD Ameritrade conference, and I started talking to this uh, financial planner, but he was also a professor at Texas Tech University. And he was like, you know, and I had my master's in psychology, and I was talking to him about how I would talk to these advisors, and we would be working on rebalancing their portfolio, you know, because like Billy needed to go back to rehab or Sandra, you know, crashed the car or they were about to have this big vacation. Like sometimes it was a nice thing and, you know, and so they needed to get money out of the portfolio. And so you would start with like talking about portfolio things, but you would end with like family things. So I'm having this conversation with this uh, with this advisor slash professor, uh, Dr. Barry Mulholland, who's now at Akron State. And um, he was like, you know, if you you like all this stuff like you know that there are actually people that are studying like the emotions and family dynamics around money and i was like really and uh, he's like yeah they're at texas tech and they're at georgia and if you uh want to in kansas state and if you want to meet them i'll help you and so i mean he didn't have to do that it was just like sort of one of those amazing happenstance moments of a very kind man and uh he did just that. He introduced me to Dr. Sonia Luter and Dr. Christy Archuleta. And I had a conversation with them, immediately signed up for their master's program, two classes into their master's program, signed up for their PhD, finished my PhD. Uh, and around that time, I was looking for work. I'm a military spouse. And um, so we move around a lot. So finding a stable job can be challenging at times. And uh, two of my uh, classmates, Dr. Lawson and Dr. Tharp, both named Derek, um, were working for Michael. And they were like, you should, like, there's this woman that we know, and she's she's pretty smart. She knows the things, you know, like, and she doesn't really, she has to move around. So, like, maybe you can even get her at a really good rate. <laughs> and so, uh, they helped me to meet Michael, and uh, Michael and I hit it off, and just because Michael also um, loves 
the psychology of financial planning and the relationships in financial planning. As much as he loves all the tax stuff, too, I secretly think, even though Michael may never say it out loud, that he actually loves the psychology stuff uh, the most out of all the things that we do. So we bonded over that, and I started writing continuing education uh, questions for Michael. And then, uh, you know, as time sort of went on, I was like, you know, I, I can write, Michael. And he was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I started writing for the platform, and then I started writing very regularly for the platform. Now I write at least 18 articles a year. I'm a professor at Columbia University in New York. I teach the financial psychology class. I'm a professor of practice at Kansas State University, teach a fair number of financial planning classes as well as, um, or advanced financial planning classes as well as uh, financial therapy classes. And I also every once in a while teach at Maryland and I hope to be doing some teaching at uh, the American College um, as well. But for Michael, I do research and writing. We do research on financial planners on the Kitsis platform and I'm a part, I'm technically like on the research team, even though I spend a lot of time with the editorial team because I write at least 18 articles um, a year for the platform. So amongst oh, all of those things, <laughs> I'm in a between you know, running a- on some kids, you know, those things too. How do you go about filtering out from the lists and lists of different topics that you can pick from? Because it feels like whatever doesn't fit in the technical space, you know, falls on your plate. But then how does the the team, I'm assuming, narrow that down to something that says, hey, this is really what our audience would care about or what financial planners would care about? I spend and I spend a lot of time talking to financial advisors. Um, every uh, quarter for the past almost two years now, I've conducted, you can think of it as like qualitative research. I kind of have like a set of, you know, so many questions and I will set up interviews uh, with somewhere between 15 and 25 advisors and talk to them about how they talk to their clients, what they talk to their clients about, how this particular meeting is conducted versus this particular meeting. What do they have questions about? What do they struggle with? So I'm always talking to advisors. And then, you know, I do have the wonderful opportunity to be surrounded by people like Michael Kitsis, Jeff Levine, um, Ben and Adam and Erica and Sydney, you know, all all members of the Kitsis team that are always like, hey, do you do you know something about this? Like this behavior is happening. Can you tell me tell me why that's happening? <laughs> um, so there's that as well. Uh, just there's always people around with lots of opinions at the Kitsis platform. And um, so getting to hear those and nerd out with with those people is wonderful. I also do a lot of speaking. And so at the speaking events, um, which is actually how I know that you listened to my most recent webinar, that webinar came to be because of all the speaking events that I was doing. I had a number of advisors asking me after I gave the presentation that I was giving, hey, well, I have these review meetings and it's kind of like, barring, you know, like, do you have any suggestions for that? And so I, I was just asked that so many times that I uh, thought, well, should probably do something about that. So I, I talked to a lot of advisors a lot. I mean, that makes so much sense, right? So bringing in real world struggles that financial advisors are having and saying, okay, let's try and figure that out. Have you seen a shift in the types of concerns? Has, has there been a major change in what people are worried about generally, the end client? Uh, it sort of surrounds two things and and I, I can say that it's it's certainly changed like the interest level and things like that but you know the there's some scary statistics out there worldwide statistics this is not just like a US problem that like it's like 8 out of 10 financial advisors that get started fail like it's a hard it's a hard business it's a hard business to get started in it's hard to find clients and so as much as they probably want to ask me about their client relationships, we talk a lot about prospecting relationships because if you don't have a business, it's kind of hard for me to tell you about your business. So I get asked a lot about you know how to meet prospects, how to talk to prospects, what's motivating for prospects, how to think about those initial meetings where we want to build trust, we want to demonstrate value. We also hopefully will meet somebody that we like and then be able to 
you know, convince them to come to the other side, you know, as a client. Um, so there's there's that. People ask me a lot about that. And then uh, I also get asked just a fair amount about how to have deeper client conversations, you know, that and, and that's probably the thing that has changed the most, the number of people that are becoming more interested in that. And in fact, this is sort of an odd thing and and really just kind of my, it's anecdotal, it's just my experience. But I find that I get even more of those questions for, well, I get a great number of those questions from financial planners outside of the United States, just because financial planning is done in such a different way, or doesn't have to be, but oftentimes it is, that a big differentiator maybe than other things is this human side, you know, of financial planning. And so I find that there's actually quite a few advisors in in India and in Italy and Spain and in South Africa that are more interested oftentimes in talking about um, the human side of things and maybe less about the tax side of things. But that could also just be because my tax system is very different than yours. And so they're like, well, why talk about that? You know, but again, just my anecdotal experience that uh, financial advisors worldwide are quite interested in what it means to be human and how to be better with other humans. Yeah, I think I've experienced the same. You know, if you think about the um, life-centered planning, if you think about George Kinder's work, the Sudden Money Institute, these are all things that irrespective of where you are in the world, you can apply that not only to your clients, but to your relationships. Oh, yeah. If If you had to create a training program from scratch, for someone that have maybe been in the industry, let's call it 15, 20 years that are saying, hey, I want to sharpen my skills. I I think I'm technically good. Like, where would you start? What would be the type of skills that you would focus on most? We often hear people talk about communication or kind of emotional intelligence. Do you think there's a there's a certain process or is it really dependent on the person? I think it can, it can be, it's probably a mix of both. You know, nothing is ever one thing perfectly or the other. So for sure, life planning and the financial transitionists, the sudden money people, I'm I'm friends and like in these circles, like these are my people, you know? So if you've never done that or never experienced that or been a part of one of those groups, I would um, highly recommend it. And again, some people may not like what I'm about to say next, but I think this it, this is not just like, financial planners. This is just what happens. Um, you know, so when you have 20 years of experience, whether it's my 20 years of experience as a professor or it's 20 years of experience as a financial planner or 20 years of experience as a medical doctor, you begin because we all do. You know, we walk into the room and we we know the answers. I know what you're going to ask me. I've taught the Black Scholes model like 70,000 times. Like I know where you're going to have a problem. You know, and financial planners think I've talked to like a thousand people getting a divorce. You know, this isn't this isn't new to me. And I'm not saying that that's bad. That's great that we have so much life knowledge and experience knowledge. But this is where it gets tricky for that person. This is their first time and they are vulnerable. And we can sometimes forget with all of the knowledge that we have just how vulnerable that that feels. And I I teach a lot of financial planners. I work with a lot of financial planners. One of my favorite things to ask, especially well-tenured financial planners, is who's your financial planner? And they usually say something like, oh, I don't have one. And I'm like, well, like, how can you possibly imagine what it's like to be your client if you've never had that done? You know, like, I, I get that you probably have lots of stuff in order and stuff like that, but imagine showing that to like another professional. And a lot of a lot of financial planners have amazing um, like origin stories, you know, why they became a financial planner. And I would say 50% of the time, it's because like something bad happened. <laughs> and, you know, to have to talk about like that painful experience to be vulnerable enough to to be on that other side and think like, oh, God, like this professional might judge me. That that level of vulnerability, that level of just sort of being humble, you know, trying to come alongside, you know, really trying to step into what your clients go through 
I think is an invaluable practice and not something that a lot, I know that if you are a life planner, you get life planned, which is pretty amazing. I think that that's great. Everybody should go through that. But unfortunately, we don't have that just for even doing good financial planning. And and I wish so, like every once in a while, we have like Slack at the Kitsis platform. And then every once in a while, it asks like, if you could invent a conference, like what would you invent? And that that would be my conference. I would just have lots of financial planners come. Everybody gets partnered up with a person that you don't know. And you have to do it like every five years, you know, because we should do financial planning, you know, not a financial plan. And so every five years, you should have to come back, partnered with somebody new, talk about your different financial goals, you know, open up your financial books, have another professional be like, okay, let's, you know, talk about those things. I, I think that not only that would just be a good practice so that everybody is financially healthy. But also, yeah, you'll re- you'll really remember, you'll definitely know, you know, how it feels to be that client. And you'll probably learn quite a few things in that process yeah. to say, oh, this, this person didn't listen to me, or maybe I do that. I wonder yeah. if going through therapy could almost be a process or having a relationship with a therapist could be kind of a shortcut to experience some of that vulnerability yeah, I uh, at K State where I teach, and and at Columbia when I teach the financial psychology class, that's usually something that I tell students. I'm like, you know, this next eight weeks, it's going to be like your therapy. And what I would encourage you to do after the end of this eight weeks, if you want to continue, you know, to learn about yourself and to learn about communication, see a therapist. You know, not because there's anything wrong, but just because it feels good to be spoken to in that way like it can it can be such a great example um, of how to have patience with resistance and things like that that it it's an invaluable experience i'm a longtime therapy user and uh, it's just it's great i think uh i think brendan frazier everybody in south africa tends to love brendan frazier i i also love him and um I know that he talks very openly about, you know, his experience in therapy and things like that and how having had that experience as a financial advisor changed his life on just the way he thought about his ability to communicate with others. Yeah, we've seen the same in our business where we've prompted people to say, hey, make use of this. We'll even pay for it just so that you get comfortable with that type of relationship, you know, the vulnerability, but also being able to 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 go to those spaces, right? Um, yeah. Often hear people talk about just kind of journaling, right, in this process, yet it's not something that we would think of telling advisors to do, like especially in the early years. It's about, hey, find your prospects. And in South Africa, we have these big insurance companies, and I'm, I'm sure you would be fairly similar, where you start your list of 100 people, and there you go. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about kind of those early years of finding finding the right fit, the right people that you need to serve? Like I, I see that people struggle so much with that right at the beginning years. Well, it's hard. It's hard for any number of reasons. Um, it can be hard because the average consumer doesn't trust financial people. So even if it's like the hundred people that you know, they're still just like, oh, you know, come on. Um, so that can be a bit, we, you're already sort of fighting an uphill battle in a way. And then it's also weird for the financial advisor that, you know, maybe you don't want to like call your friends, you know, that isn't always fun. And it can be difficult to find people. And then on top of that, you know, because certainly at the Kitsis platform, you know, we talk a lot about the benefits of having a niche, you know, like really knowing who you're going to serve and how you're going to serve them. Carl Richards, you know, talks about like you've got the bus and you've got 50 people, you know, like what, who do you want to fill your bus with? And like, um, I love Carl. I always think that's like such a, and for whatever reason, I don't know why this is. I always think about he's taking his bus to like one of those crazy music festivals. I don't know why. <laughs> it's the beard. It must be the beard, Carl. I don't think Carl would necessarily do. Pretty but men. I'm, yeah, I, I'm just like, we're going to Burning Man. I'm like, okay, Carl, like that's one way to start a party. Um, I don't I don't think he goes to Burning Man. But anyway, uh so you know, that's Carl's thing. And and but I think that that's it's hard to know that. You know, it's like telling somebody, well, you know, when you're gonna when you decide you want to get married, you know, like just just like find your partner. Well, 
unless you've dated like 50 people and know like, okay, I don't like that. And that chewing is really loud and annoying. Like unless you figure out what it is that you like or don't like, you know, who it is that you really enjoy working with and who it is that you don't. So there's going to be a time in there where you're just serving people to serve people. And to your point about journaling, mm-hmm. like if you were actively thinking about that, you know, for the for that first couple of years, like what do I like and what do I not like, you know, about these different clients, then, you know, maybe like three or four years in when you're stable, then you could say, okay, yeah, these 10 got to go, you know, these 10 are okay for right now. And, you know, and and I'm going to only search for more people like these 10. And so, and then, but you now have something to go on. Like I write a lot about on the, on the Kitsis platform that, you know, humans are bad future forecasters. We're like really bad at guessing what's going to make us happy. And, you know, the types of clients that we'll like and things like that. You, you, you may think one thing and then wind up someplace else. And so I don't know that even though I believe that niching is the right way, I don't think you have to know. You know, that's like life is one of those things. It's just like one big experiment. You know, all that really matters is that you get started and that you learn stuff. And sometimes you're going to learn <laughs> it worked. And other times you're going to learn like, oh, that crashed and burned. But either way, like if you're looking at it as though, I'm, I'm, this is just a learning process. I'm supposed to just be here and trying stuff. You know, I wanted to do financial planning. I wanted to be a financial planner. I'm doing that. I'm doing that. Sometimes I like it more than others, but, you know, I'm doing the thing that I set out to do. And I think that, you know, giving ourselves a little bit of grace, you know, having a little bit of patience in that first couple of years instead of just that mounting pressure to be doing it exactly right and have the exact niche and know exactly how to talk about it so that like thousands of leads just come storm your door. I don't I don't think that happens for anyone but Carl, but only because he said he's going to Burning Man. And so it's just like, you know, like you you have to like get you just have to get in there and get started and be okay with it being kind of screwy for a couple of years. You know, and then and then like transition to something that feels maybe less screwy. Megan, I love that because it takes away all of the pressure. So all of that yeah, pressure around. There's an immense having... pressure to just be doing it right from day one. And I talk to hundreds, if not thousands of financial planners, ones that are very good and they still don't know. <laughs> so uh, just let that and go. we're also probably quite bad at remembering those relationships, oh, right? Yeah. The ones that yeah. worked and the ones that didn't work. Yes. And I like what you're saying, like create this create the data and then you can go back and say, okay, what is this, what is this telling me? Like, is there a theme? Is there a story coming mm-hmm. through? Yeah, like, are, are you hearing people doing this? Like, are they, are they tagging? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> okay. Hey, we found, we found yeah. your next yeah. article. Really? Yeah. I mean, and, and that's one of the things that's hard is that, you know, financial planning in and of itself is kind of like a very siloed profession. People are lonely mm. and we don't, talk to each other as I think that's becoming less of a thing. I think we are finding pockets of communities, whether it's life planners or XY planning network or the transitionists or the therapists, like people are finding other the tax nerds, like, you know, people are finding other people to come together and talk about the good stuff and the bad stuff, you know, what's worked and what's not. One thing that I've heard a lot lately, and I Again, I'm not quite sure just like if it's the group of people that I'm hanging out with or what, but I've talked to a lot of financial advisor men that are about my age. So they're, they've got to be in their late 30s, early 40s. And they have all been talking about having a mentor and, and just like another guy who was doing, you know, financial planning kind of like them, but yet kind of different. And, and they have really learned a lot, you know, from that relationship, being able to share woes and being able to talk about prospecting and being able to talk about like, what's your financial plan look like? Okay, this is what my financial plan looks like. And I think that that's great. You know, I know that that is what happens at Kansas State University. It's also what happens at Columbia because we're teaching master's students or I'm teaching master's students primarily at those universities, if not PhD students. And so oftentimes these are individuals that already have their practice. They like they already have their CFP. And yes, we are teaching them like other th- skills and knowledge and things like that related to the doing of financial planning. But the other thing that is beautiful is just you now have these five classes, eight weeks each, where you're pretty much in the same cohort with these, you know, 20 other people. 
And so you are learning about their practice and they're learning about your practice and, you know, you're connecting with each other. It's just um, the peer-to-peer learning and the the peer-to-peer knowledge transfer is is amazing to watch. And I think, I mean, again, I believe that the stuff that we're teaching is important and, you know, school matters. But I I think that the friendships, relationships, the learnings that they have from each other, practitioner to practitioner, is by far the important part of those programs. I want to talk a little bit more about this mentorship idea, specifically advisors that have been maybe, you know, slightly longer tenure and are thinking about how do I grow my business? We've seen it in South Africa, typically with people starting out, right? They would be partnered with a mentor that would teach them predominantly sales skills. But what you're talking about is something different. For yeah. people that might think, hey, I could be a I could be a mentor to someone else. Like what are the what are the things that you would look for in a in a good mentor? Uh someone that you can be honest with. I know that that sounds maybe obvious, but like you you have to want to share. Like mentors and mentees, it's a symbiotic relationship. It's not just like I'm going to knowledge dump on you. Like there should be information transfer both ways. And it's important that that relationship can be opus, open and honest about like, oof, I had a rough quarter. You know, I need to talk about that. Or, you know, there's been family things that have happened and I need to talk about that. Um, so just one, having somebody that you feel you can really be honest with. So maybe similar to even, oh, well, Another thing that matters, I think, is um, that you have maybe similar values. And again, that may sound very obvious, but like if you're a fee-only planner, not that you can't work with somebody that, you know, isn't a fee-only planner, but you're going to, there's the things about the way that you do financial planning that are going to make more sense to this other person. And so um, I think that's important. Um, Those are probably the two big ones, you know, because it's not that, it's not even necessarily important that you do everything the same, you know, that there really maybe should be some disagreement, you know, between the two of you and that that right, you know, that that mix about just learning different ways, you know, as the expression goes, maybe like I'm assuming this is a universal expression, but I don't know now that I'm yeah. thinking about it, I don't know what the expression is and what it would be in Spanish. They probably think that's weird if you said it more than one way to skin a cat, you know, like. I find so my, my cat scratching at the door. So <laughs> hopefully, uh, she's not listening. Even, um, a lot of the stuff that I write about in terms of psychology, like I, like you mentioned, life planning and George Kinder, mm. who I love. But I look at his questions and I think, you know, I've I've seen George, like you know, say things and just like even the way he moves, like when he does it, I I could never do that. Like I'm I'm not George. I look different than George. I act different than George. And so like when I walk into a room, I don't, I may command the room still, but I'm going to command it in a different way. And so under like his life planning questions, those three questions that he asked, the dream of freedom question, and then the you're going to die in five years question, and then you're going to die tomorrow question. Those are amazing. But I don't know that many planners that are like, oh yeah, that feels supernatural. I love asking those, you know, like people are like, I've heard they're interesting. I definitely want to try them. And so when I wrote about them, I I wrote about the underpinnings. Like, why does this work? You know, when George says this, what's going on in this person's brain? And could there be something else that you could ask that might also get that going in someone's brain? But then you don't have to like be George. You can be you and still get it done. And so I I think that it's very useful to talk to other people that maybe, again, have the same values as you, you know, have and you can be open with them, but that you're talking regularly about how you maybe you both go at the same issue, maybe in slightly different ways. And that's kind of like the science and the art, as we say, you know, of financial planning. There's lots of different ways to do this and no way is necessarily like the silver bullet. And, you know, and I was talking about me and how I'm different from George, but George's clients are probably different from like my clients and what works for my clients versus what works for George's clients might be very different. So there's 
there's just the dynamic of yourself. There's the dynamic between you and your clients. And these are things that are different from one financial advisor to another. And to have the opportunity to like try different stuff, talk about what worked, talk about what didn't, hear from this other person about what they tried and what worked and didn't work, that just the the amount of knowledge that can be generated from that, the understanding of, you know, not even if you're necessarily collecting data, but just it it doesn't have to be just like this. One, I love Michael. I love Michael. I think he's one of the smartest, loveliest people I've ever met in my life. I can tell you many times I have written articles and Michael just writes in the side, like in the notes. I would not say that. <laughs> and so like even between Michael and I who believe the same things, like I'm not Michael. Michael is not me. What I could say to my client is not what Michael would say to his. But if we can all understand like, you know, some of these underlying factors, then it no longer matters if it's Michael's way or my way. Like it just becomes like, this is what it means to be human. If you want to pull this lever, here's a bunch of different ways to do it. Pick the one that makes the most sense for you. There was some great research that was done by Dr. Sonia Luter and Dr. Grable. And they were looking at sort of like the stress and anxiety of the financial advisor. And then and and so they measured that with like finger stuff, you know. And what they found was that those advisors that were more nervous, this transferred to their clients. And so like, again, if you like, I'm not like George's questions are amazing. But if you walk in there and you're like, here we go. And, you know, you're nervous about asking that question that's basically like, hey, you're dead. You know, tell me like, tell me how do you feel about that? If you're nervous, your client's going to get nervous. And and maybe a little bit of nerves is okay, but not a lot. You know, some of the research that we did on the Kitsis platform, we looked at uh, personality types. Dr. Dr. Derek Sarp and I and Michael were looking at personality types, the big five. And of course, we found that those advisors that are less neurotic and more calm, they tended to be the better advisors. And, uh, you know, so it makes sense when you hear it out loud, like this is not rocket science or anything like that. But it's really important to understand that there is data that actually backs that up, you know, from slightly different perspectives from Dr. Dr. Luter and uh, Grable, but also Derek and myself, you know, finding similar patterns that how comfortable you are, the advisor, matters immensely to how comfortable the client is. I mean, Megan, this drills back down into knowing yourself, you mm-hmm. know, having a mentor, getting to understand what it is that you're good at. But I'm wondering how much of this is kind of client expectations? Like what if your client's not ready for these questions or not expecting it? Or is there a way to prime clients to say, hey, when when we have these conversations, this is what you can expect? Yeah, I think that goes back to even what we were talking about earlier, that um, it's one thing to be the asker. <laughs> you know, it's another thing to be the person that has to respond. And if you've never met with a financial planner before and like you think that they're going to ask you about your 401k, your retirement account, which is can be scary enough to be like, oh, there's only this much money in it, you know, feeling like there maybe should be another $100,000. Like, so that already feels yucky, you know, to what like do other people have. <laughs> like, where, where, right. Yeah. But then for them to say something like the kinder questions, you're just like, whoa, wasn't ready for that. You know, mm. like not that it's not a good question, but like, people uh, that can really catch people off guard. And I think that we sometimes forget that, you know, as the financial advisor, because most financial advisors don't have a financial advisor that have life planned them. And so, you know, to just to understand that whole experience from start to finish to be in that vulnerable chair is is a is a hard one. And um, I think that yeah, it's about knowing yourself, but it's also about just really trying to, as much as you can, you know, step into how vulnerable that can be for clients. You know, a, a common, common thing that I tell financial advisors to do, and actually George, for whatever, you know, says the opposite, but always tell people what you're going to ask them. Like, you you know, send them an email that's like, hey, you know, thanks for like signing up. I can't wait to meet you on Tuesday, you know, February 21st at three o'clock, you know, here, here's three things that we're going to talk about. Here's three questions that I'm actually going to ask you that, A, they'll maybe think about it and give you a better answer than like, I don't know, or yeah, I hope to retire. You know, like people haven't, 
often been uh, given the space to really think about financial goals and things like that. And so they either will answer with, I don't know, or a lot of times they'll answer with very broad things that, again, they think they're supposed to say or, you know, that like they think this will make them happy. Um, And I don't mean that to sound like prospects and clients are dumb, but we we haven't given them the space. It's typically not part of any society that I've ever met to talk about money and to talk about goals and to talk about life and things like those things are just not done. And so they're doing that for the first time in a financial planning office, talking to essentially a total stranger, you know, about things that are very, very personal. And then we ask them what they're going to regret when they die. And you're just like, there may there may be a better way to set that up. You know, like I and so I definitely think anytime you can send a note to the client and say, hey, this is what we're going to talk about. This also matters, like not only for the vulnerability thing, but it matters to adult learning. You know, like when you think about how adults learn, which is different than how kids learn, it's really important to sort of set that table to. So whether you make like a little loom video and you're like, hey, you know, I'm Megan and I I love to talk about divorce and like, you know, here's the things that we're going to talk about. And, you know, here's kind of like what our financial planning software looks like. And it's, you know, just like a 20 minute little snippet just to tell them, who are you? And what are you going to talk about? And what are some things you're going to show them? So that when they actually then arrive at the meeting, they may have thought a little bit about like the answer. So it probably be a better answer. Um, they may, they're, they're not really going to be surprised about some of the technology that we use. So instead of just like watching and being like, oh, this thing's happening in front of me and not really being able to generate questions in the moment. I mean, I've even tried this with my students that instead of doing a live lecture, I record all of my lectures. I'm sure some students just watch them at full time speed, like, you know, three times speed, like just because they don't want to hear me talk. That's fine. But, you know, and then when we have class, part of their homework is to turn in questions that they had based on the lecture. And then that's what we do in live class. We talk about the questions or we talk about a case study you know, that would matter. And there's a lot more engagement. And I have even looked at test scores. Test scores have gone up since I started doing that. And I think that it all goes back to this idea of of how adults learn, you know, how people like to communicate, you know, trying to <laughs> trying to work, trying to counteract a little bit some of that anticipation anxiety that people have, you know, trying to hold that space for people to be vulnerable, but, you know, give them the information that you're going to be asking them about. And then for the advisor to also be stepping into that confidence, like you don't need to worry about like presenting something, you know, like you've, we've done that part. Now, you know, we're going to ask you some questions. I think that can really help a lot and, you know, can really change the types of conversations uh, that we're having and the level of engagement in particular that we get from clients. I mean, isn't that, I get asked that a lot too. Well, you know, I had all these meetings and the client signed up and then, you know, we had our six month review and nobody did anything. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure they didn't. (laughs) I mean, it's wonderful how you like bringing down the anxiety levels. I'm just thinking someone that doesn't know what to expect. They can see it. They could feel like you're engaging all of the senses. I mean, it makes complete sense. Yet, we're not seeing that. We're not. We're not seeing people using it, and I guess that's part of having these conversations around testing it because the technology is there. Oh yeah, it maybe it doesn't even have to be difficult. Or yeah, yeah. I, I think that. Well, I mean, more research needs to be done in financial planning um, and on financial planners and on actual mm. financial planning relationships. So it's not. I wouldn't necessarily. I will put all of the onus of advisors not knowing to do that on myself as an educator and a researcher within financial planning. You know, people go to school to be financial planners. And unfortunately, our textbooks don't yet have that research. And that's my fault, you know, as an educator, as a researcher. And I, I want to make that better. But yeah, it's moments like this where these ideas are, you know, creeping into advisors' minds and they're like, yeah, you know, I do kind of say the same thing. For the most part, you know, in this particular meeting, maybe it would be better if I just like recorded part of that and then told the client, hey, we're going to talk about this stuff. 
here's the recording on it. You know, come up with a couple of questions. Send them to me. We're going to cover that. And I say, I, I, well, I know because I've talked to fi- a few financial planning firms that do it and they really like the results. It's like one of those things. Once you've done it, you can't go back not doing it. It's like using a calendar booking system. You can't you can't go back to the old way doing it. Exactly. What what are you experiencing with with in-person meetings? Cuz you know there's been this shift like a lot of online meetings yet in South Africa when we talk to financial planners the quality of the in-person meetings are not that great. I could, the quality of the like in-person ones are not The quality of the in-person meetings <laughs> like people are not arranging their offices in a way that's conducive for these Oh, yeah. Conversations, right? They're not paying attention to all of the different elements. They might have a drinks menu, but that's pretty much where it ends. That would that would get me in there. Um, so I, they, so actually, Dr. Sonia Luter, who did the study with Grable, they did another study where they did kind of like, uh, they set up offices like therapist offices. So like a couch and a table, or at least if you don't want to think of it like a therapist, like a, like a living room, you mm-hmm. know, more comfortable. There's a couple of couches. There's a couple of chairs. There's, you know, maybe a little like side table, but nothing like in between, you know, the, the advisor and the client. Certainly the advisor is not sitting behind like a big old desk with the client, you know, on the other side, like that's not happening. And just doing that, you know, changing the office itself, again, lowers anxiety for the client, which then can help them to open up more, you know, can help them to express a little bit better when it's when the power dynamic is seen through the furniture. Uh, it makes people uncomfortable, you know, like that that makes people uncomfortable. So just thinking, yeah, about how your physical office is arranged. And if it, we, you know, studies show that if it looks more like a therapist's office or like a living room, um, then there'll be lower anxiety and you'll probably end up having better conversations. This this theme of the kind of lowering anxiety makes, I mean, makes so much sense, right? You just yep. want someone to feel comfortable so you can have better quality conversations. Right. I'm thinking back to a few meetings I've had where the prospects or the clients would say, I'm not going to switch on my video today because I don't, I don't feel that great. Like I'm, I'm happy to have an online meeting, but I just feel a bit safer not having the video on. Are you seeing any research around how online meetings are maybe having better quality conversations or different types of conversations in the financial planning space? I can't necessarily. Well, uh, I know that Dr. McCoy with a bunch of Dr. McCoy, Dr. Megan McCoy, she's at Kansas State with me. Um, basically, the Megans run Kansas State. Uh, <laughs> we um she has done some research with some of her graduate students, you know, looking at the research on uh, teletherapy and like what, you know, how is teletherapy working for therapy clients? And there there was lower anxiety, you know, because like getting to the office and getting in the office and signing up the paperwork, like all of that falls away when all you have to do is just like click your, you know, video. Um, also just, again, being in your own home, not having to be in like a doctor's office, you know, also oftentimes feels or brings lower anxiety. Um, there can also be things that the therapist learns or sees, you know, cause they see your home, you know, like if it's crazy in the background, um, and people are talking about stress, you know, this might be an indication that your whole home environment is a bit stressful. Um, so those are things to think about. And it didn't really uh, change. Well, I can't say that the conversations were better, but people were starting the conversations with lower anxiety. And so the way that the conversations happened, the fact that if they needed to cancel last minute and then reschedule, you know, that was much easier than like having to go and, you know, to the actual place and then find out and have to come back. Like that's it's like a whole extra unnecessary step that just kind of stresses people out. And I have I have heard of financial advisors like you know they know when the meeting is and so then like 15 minutes before the meeting they'll uber eats like some coffee to like the client's house and you know so then like doorbell rings hot coffee is delivered you know now we sit down and like have a conversation yeah i think like stuff like that's lovely you know just being able to i don't know if that made the conversation go better but it sounds nice a surprise and delight hey yeah exactly and 
and we would do things like that. You know, if they were in our office, mm-hmm. we'd be like, you know, here's a tea or, you know, here's a warm beverage. There's just something about holding warm beverages that usually calms people down. And so thinking about those experiences, I have also been told by some financial advisors that they think it's less distracting to meet online. Um, I don't know how true that is because I certainly have read other research that says the opposite. But um, maybe if the, like the limit, a limited number of people were in the room, virtual room. Depends on how many toddlers you have in your household. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Dogs, toddlers, random cats. Um, yeah. So, but I, again, I, I really wish we had that data. Mm. You know, I really wish that we knew what was, because, because, I mean, I think you're standing up, I'm standing up right now. You know, we can, like, I talk a lot with my hands. I'm like a hand talker. Um, and so, I definitely do think that we can read some body language, but a lot of body language is lost. Um, And if people don't have their cameras on, you know, again, they may be doing that and that makes them feel more comfortable and that's fine. But still then as the other person, you're missing a lot of cues. Um, This is also assuming like, and so, you know, and when people are in your office, you know, you can see, did they like, turn away from you and they're crossing their legs from you or are they backing up and you can see some of that on camera but not as much as you could see in person um again i i think that this also depends on like how much a financial planner is aware that they're aware that they're watching the body language to try to figure out what's going on um i think some people are better at that than others and that's neither here nor there you're as humans we pick that up about each other anyway but um, yeah, we we need more research. I definitely think that having the ability to do one or the other is great, you know, because there are still some people that like, they're just going to want to see you, you know, and, and that's fine. Um, other people are going to be okay with just being able to meet online and and that's that's okay too. So I think having the flexibility of one over the other, but yeah, certainly being aware of what makes an in-person meeting go well, being aware of what makes an online meeting go well too, you know, also really matters. And it it all kind of keeps circling back to like this idea of how can we lower anxiety? You know, how can we sort of set the expectation for either what it's going to be like in this office or what it's going to be like in the virtual meeting? Um, you know, what are we going to be asking people? What are we going to be talking about? How long is this meeting? Is it stopping and starting on time? One thing that can get kind of tricky with online that doesn't happen as much uh, in person is interrupting. People don't like to be interrupted. Um, <laughs> and it gets harder and harder because, uh, again, we have natural body cues that sort of show when a person is done when we're in person that these are harder to pick up on when you're not meeting face to face. Megan, this is such a lovely masterclass in thinking about reducing the anxiety. For me, it's around noting how that meeting was what worked did you enjoy engaging with the clients did the clients enjoy it what was their level of anxiety and maybe it would be helpful to have some kind of framework for us to think about reflecting on a meeting like yeah do we just use a scale of like one out of ten and saying okay what was this was it a five or well, a four I'm really and why? questions so i'm going to answer that yeah. with a yes but okay. So one thing that we that I talked about in that webinar that I know that you watched was sort of this lap. So in teaching, we say, tell them what you're going to teach them, send an agenda, you know, then teach them, actually do what you said you were going to do in the agenda. Then Don't remind about them something of, else. <laughs> yeah. Not... Remind them of what you taught them. Mm. You know, so kind of like, did we hit all these wickets? You know, are we do we get through the meeting? But then ask them what they learned or ask them if that was enough or ask how they thought that class went, or in my mind, class, and you, like for you, how was this meeting? You know, so certainly I think it's important, if nothing else, that the advisor reflects on that, you know, what if you did that, you know, for two weeks, all of your client meetings, rate it, you know, at the and be honest, like if it's a five or a four, like because you were distracted, or they were tired or whatever, then just note it. Not everything has to be a 10 out of 10. Like, you know, we, we want there to be some variation so that we can understand and start thinking about what happened, you know, that was it you, was it them, was it where you were, whatever, you know, technology wasn't working. So it's it's okay to have those lower score stuff happens 
Uh, again, this is just one big experiment, you know, so there's going to be stuff that goes wrong. And, you know, so do that for two weeks, you know, like rate your meetings, but at least a couple of times, you know, especially with those clients that you trust, you've got like maybe a closer relationship with them. You can just say at the end of the meeting, hey, you know, I have kind of a weird, qu- I'm trying a different thing. You know, I, I listened to this podcast and they said to try it. I'm, I'm just going to try it. So I have a question for you. And the client will be like, okay. And then you say, all right, I, I want to know, like on a scale of one to 10, 10 being amazing, like the best meeting you've had in a month, or one, like you never want to have a meeting like this again. Where were we? What, what did we do? And they'll say, pro- they'll probably, because they're nice and they like you, they'll probably say like, oh, you know, a nine. And, and so then you say, well, you know, so then why, like, what would have made it a 10? Like, how, like, how could this have been a 10? And they may like say, oh, well, you didn't give me a million dollars. Okay. Yeah, I did it. You know, if that's, if that's the thing that's separating us, then <laughs> your expectations. <laughs> but you, you know, if they say mm-hmm. an eight, you know, again, you can always say, well, what, what would have made it a nine? You know, like I really, mm-hmm. I'm trying to improve my meeting experience. I'm trying to just improve how I connect with clients. You know, this feedback is really important to me. Can we have that conversation? Clients will tell you. They will tell. They will be honest with you. They will not be afraid of it. They don't think it's weird. You know, they they are human. They want to have a good meeting too. Uh, they don't want to get to the end and be like, "This could have been an email." Um, you know, we we all feel that way sometimes. And so, uh, it is an incredibly valuable practice uh, for the client and for you to to get to the end of the meeting and say, "You know, how was this? You know, did we do what we set out to do?" Are you feeling fulfilled, you know, having been here? What, whatever the point of the meeting was. And, you know, the, then ask them to rate the meeting. And there will be times that you rate the meeting differently than they did. And again, it's important to understand whatever they said. If it's a seven, why wasn't an eight? You know, get that feedback. But then also, if you had thought it was like a nine, you know, you don't need to tell the client that. You can just think about that by yourself. Um, like, well, that's funny. I, I thought I did a nine. I'm a nine. You know, that don't do that. But um, but thinking about it afterwards, for sure. And also, you know, this goes back to kind of like the mentee, mentee thing, mentor, mentee thing. If you have another financial planner, whether it's a paraplanner or something like this, you know, in the meeting with you, ask them to rate it too. You know, it's, it is about the collective experience of being in this meeting, not just your experience. That's I mean, kind of we, if there's like we can learn from like workout apps that tells you afterwards yeah. how did you think this workout went like even right, Netflix right. asked you yeah, <laughs> did it right. so start exactly. serving I I'm definitely going to implement that in our business yeah. and talking reflecting on the meeting and referring back to it and seeing what yeah. worked Megan this has been a wonderful conversation for people that want to read some of the articles want to watch some of the webinars that you've hosted like what's the best place to connect with you. The best place is the kitsis.com website. That's where most of the things that I write are. Uh, That's where most of the webinars that I do are. That's the best place to find it. Thank you so much. I wish you all the best with your classes and your future research. And please continue with the wonderful content that you've been putting out. Thank you.